Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Hey, Corinne. Hey, Dom. How are you doing? Doing really well. It's been a while since we've had you in the studio. It has indeed. It's good to have you back, though. Thank you. Another episode of Culture Bites. Yep, very excited. And your timing is actually really good because just recently the Royal Commission on Banking and Finance Industry just came out with their findings. A lot in there, a lot going on, but what was of particular interest for us, obviously, is some of their recommendations around culture. Mm. What I would love to do, so they've come out with a bunch of recommendations, and I, I can read them off in a second, but what I'd love to do in this episode is talk to you as someone who's, you know, you have done lots and lots and lots of, uh, you know, culture changes and transformations and so on with with uh, different organizations from all sorts of industries. And so what I'd love to do is get your insight into, based on the recommendations from the Hain Report and the Banking Royal Commission, what should financial institutions be doing? How can they implement this stuff? Yeah, it's a great question, Dom, and I'm, I'm sure that financial institutions being inundated with hmm. everything that they should do. So I want to keep it really simple in this hmm. podcast. And these are really born of the lessons that we've learned over time working with organisations. Um, so before I go into that, I just want to make the point that one of the dangers for the banks at the moment is that they're in a burning platform. Mm. So a fire's just gone off mm. and the spotlight is on everything that is wrong and not working. Yeah, lots them. of hand-wringing going on. Lots of hand-wringing going on. And so the issue with that is it creates a burning platform and, you know, it's been popular to, to for organisations to say, oh, we need a burning platform in order to change. The problem with a burning platform is it puts people into a threat state mm. and putting people into a threat state means that you're going to get a reactive, a lot of reactive instincts and people trying to make sure that they're not in the firing line. Inherent in the name is we need to jump or burn, right? Correct, <laughs> correct. And so the issue with that from a cultural perspective is it actually doesn't build a healthy culture. Huh. It doesn't build a healthy culture if it's necessarily an ethical culture because people are really just trying to survive. And so you're going to, banks are going to have to be really careful that as they address the issues raised by the Hain report that the Haynes Commission, that they're not reacting from the culture that they've got, the oh. one that that has caused the issues, and that they're not so reactive and so focused on being seen to do something that they end up implementing the wrong response. Yeah. Sometimes I think people can fly to the opposite extreme and so Completely. on. Completely. And so it's not an answer to put in a whole bunch of steps that are all about compliance. It can't be the only answer because what you're going to get is a lot of ticking the boxes. And that isn't necessarily going to the heart of the deep-seated issues that created the problem in the first place. So I think the first thing that I want to say before we go into what would I do is really to take on board that the first thing is when you're about to consider culture change or changing an aspect of your culture, you've really got to find the burning ambition rather than the burning platform. 
because the burning ambition gives people something to work towards versus a burning platform, which gives you something that you've got to try and avoid. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot more powerful and it's a lot easier to actually motivate people to make the right decisions for the right reasons when they're working towards an ambition. Yeah. And I can just imagine that because, look, let's face it, there's lots of people working in the finance industry and the vast majority of them are great people. Correct. You know, and yeah. so on. And so they've probably been through the ringer a bit yeah. <laughs> recently with the, with yeah. the media and stuff. Yeah. And they may have not done anything wrong personally. Correct. And all that. So it's really about, it's not saying putting them all in that same light that we're going to punish them. There's this burning platform, but this is an opportunity. This is a watershed moment for their organizations where they have momentum to, well, where do we want to be? What does it look like in the future? And I think that that's the opportunity here. And you're absolutely right. There are a lot of good people in those um, sectors. And, you know, the danger is we paint everybody exactly the same and Mm -hmm. they're not. so the question is, what to do now? Yep. What can we do now that is going to be meaningful and create real change for the long term? So what I would do, first of all, is always to define the burning ambition. So we've mm. got to get organisations to identify what's the future state look like? How are we going to be different? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What would it sound like? And so you've got to identify what the growth opportunity is. Mm -hmm. And the growth may be around, you know, commercial growth, but it's as much around the growth of the people in the business, the growth of service experience of the customer. So it's really looking at what is our ambition at this point and then putting a really good description around what that looks like. Now, one of the fundamental things that organizations and I would be working with banks to do, any organizations, to identify what are the values that support achieving that ambition. Uh. Ambition unchecked and too task-oriented without values can run amok. Uh. Okay. People uh. get carried with carried away with the delivering a task versus checking in with the values and the behaviours that keep the organisation grounded. So switch from burning platform to burning ambition. In defining the burning ambition, it's really coming up with a a story around what our world looks like in Mm -hmm. that future state. And an essential part of that is actually defining the values A lot of organisations have values. A lot of organisations have values that have been determined by the executive and Mm -hmm. pushed down. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that I would do is get everybody involved in defining the values in some way. Sometimes if you've got a large organisation, it doesn't necessarily have to be everybody, but you can use technology to actually involve people in providing input into defining what those values are. More importantly as well is then breaking down those values into the behaviours. What does this value look like? If I, if we say that respect's really important to us, what does it look like every day? How would I know, Dom, mm. that I'm showing you respect? What does it look like? What does it sound like? So breaking down those behaviours. In organisations that we've worked with, we look at defining what good looks like in terms of behaviours when we're doing this well. Mm. 
and what it looks like when we're falling short, Mm. okay, when we haven't quite made it or met it. So I think that's part of defining the future state is what does good look like? What does it look like when we're falling short? What does it look like in terms of what the business is going to achieve? What does it look like in terms of the behaviour that we're going to demonstrate in helping the business to get there to that burning ambition? So on that, Corinne, because that can sound quite overly prescriptive. So, you know, like we're all adults. Don't we know what respect sounds like and looks like? And don't we know what collaboration or integrity or whatever it may be looks like? So how would you balance that? I think it's um we do the the issue with it is that we probably all have a slightly different take on what it looks like and uh-huh. what it is and what it isn't. Uh-huh. So when you've got a whole hundreds and thousands of people in an organization who all have a slightly different take on what respect looks like or what honesty sounds like, then you have a massive opportunity for confusion if left to people's own ideas. So I think that it's not about forcing people to adopt values that don't make sense for them, but the process is involving employees and leaders alike in clarifying and defining what the values are that would help deliver this ambition. And in that process where you get people working together, top and bottom, so it's not top down or bottom up, it's a bit of both, you get a refinement and an agreement about what it looks like, mm. what's acceptable to, to me, my personal values, but how I can align that with the organisation. So it's not, it is setting an expectation around what we want to see around here, what we want to hear around here. And if you involve getting the balance, as you said, is actually involving employees as well as leaders in a process that creates the outcome of agreed values of what it looks like. Because otherwise what you'll have is what you think is respectful may not be the exact definition of what I think is respectful. So it's really just a process of alignment rather than being too prescriptive or too, if you like, nanny state about it. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, you're not going to cover every situation, right? So it's just you're guidelines. not. Yeah, yeah guidelines. guidelines. So what's interesting about that, so I'm just looking at the, the Hain recommendations now. So the interesting thing, I love that reframe from a burning platform to a burning ambition because that's actually not in the Hain recommendations at all. So they actually just kind of assume that everyone knows there's a problem that needs to be solved. But yeah. instead of taking that view, which is we're all bad, let's, you know, punish ourselves or whatever. It's actually saying, you know, where do we want to be? Where do we want to go? And so that's a really important first step. What I'd love your take on is with the rest of the recommendations from from the Hain Commission was a few different things. And what I what resonated for me is it sounded really similar to our how culture works model. Mm. So I'd love to go through it with you and, and just bounce off that a little. So mm. the recommendations were if I read the four of them, for changing culture and governance was assess the entity's culture and its governance. Um, So it's a bit about measuring culture. Mm -hmm. Identify any problems with that culture and governance. Mm. And so I know we look at the causal factors, what creates the culture, what shapes it. Deal with those problems. So obviously we need to implement something to actually fix them and determine whether the changes 
uh, made were effective or not. And mm. that kind of speaks to our test, retest and, and pulsing and so on. So mm. Mm. from what you've said before, so we've defined a future state now. So that's the extra bit that I think Hayne were missing. Yeah. So where do we actually want to be? Mm. How do we address the next one, which is about assessing the entity's culture as it yeah. is? Yeah. So just before we go into that, there's likely to be some things that banks and financial institutions, decisions that they can take, mm. areas that they know need to be corrected. Mm. Right now. Right now. Mm-hmm. And so they need to do that. Mm-hmm. And then after that, that can't be all they do, which is where this conversation comes in. Yeah, gotcha. They need to. Uh, so there needs to be some corrective action taken. But that in and of itself isn't going to be sufficient mm-hmm. to create a cultural change. And mm-hmm. so I don't want to make it sound like we're saying that there isn't a need to address some issues that they likely by now have understood yeah. is not working. But once you've got your future state, you now need to measure your current state. Mm-hmm. You have to identify where you are right now relative to where it is that you'd like to be. So we've talked about the burning ambition. We've got an ambition. We've got to identify our current state in relation to that ambition. And so when we measure culture, we need to get a baseline of what that looks like right now. And that does a couple of things. One is it gives us some information about where we are right now, but it also gives us an idea about the gap between Uh where we are now and where we need to be. And so in that gap, we get the first indicators of what we're going to need to address in order to accelerate our ability to get to that ambition, that burning ambition. So in what we do with the the baseline is we're looking at the gap between current state and future state. And we know that there will be the action plan will come from identifying what's working what's not working or needs work, what needs to be different. And we know now how culture works model that there are five factors that shape the current culture. And so we know that the gap analysis will be made up of one or more of those five factors. And those five factors, we've talked about them, I think, in previous podcasts, Mm -hmm. but I'm just going to go through it. So we know that First factor is the clarity of your mission. So to what extent do people understand what you stand for as an organization, who you are and what those objectives are and how widely shared are there? If, for example, you've got a culture and we're assuming with some of the the banks and the financial organizations based on the Haynes report that they're going to have a defensive culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you have a defensive culture, let's say you've got a culture that's very high task, in the circumplex it would show up as very high red. So your mission currently might be more about numbers, being the best, being admired, and really more about getting out ahead of people. Short, short-term results. Short-term results. So what it means in terms of changing the culture to make it more constructive You want to include the customer in there. Uh You want to include why is it there, who are you serving, and what kind of experience you want to create for them. So that would take it from being an aggressive, defensive-oriented mission to much more of a constructive culture mission Uh where it's balancing task and people, what we want to achieve, why, and who will benefit Uh from that. So that's an example of working on mission. 
The second factor in terms of dressing the gap will be the power structure in the organisation. Who has influence? Who doesn't? Uh, How much of it do they have? uh, And we find that in organisations that highly centralised power systems, very hierarchical, you get a very strong top down. uh, And in that kind of culture, you can have a very passive culture where people, even if they know things are wrong, they don't speak up. uh, They don't do anything different. And so in this change what you want to do to go from green to blue, you need to create some employee feedback mechanisms where people can speak up without fear of repercussions. And you could do that in the way that you run your team meetings, in by actually having surveys, by having focus groups, but it's creating opportunities for people to come together to raise issues in a way that's open but without repercussion. So we know that We've got, just to recap, we've got five areas that we're going to have to address in a culture change. The degree to which the mission is clear and understood by everybody. The degree to which influence is shared throughout the organisation. One of the big issues in cultural change and big issues with organisations that are experiencing cultural issues is too much, there's too much of a bureaucracy, too much of a a centralised power. Uh What you've got to do in today's organisations is really to distribute influence and ownership so that everybody takes responsibility for not just for their work, but for the work of the the organisation and the service to customer and and stakeholders. It almost reminds me of David Marquet's uh, Turn the Ship Around, if you read that any Long story short, he's a Navy commander and he comes on a boat that he's not familiar with. He yeah. gives the command to, you know, ahead three-fourths or whatever. Yeah. And everyone's, aye, aye, sir. And they all sit there and nothing happens. Yeah. And he said, why does nothing happen? It's because there was no three-fourths on that boat. Yeah. Like, it wasn't possible. Yeah. But everyone said yes anyway. Yeah. And I love that story because it's, um, he said, you had the deadly combination of a, and, and the background to that story was that, He'd studied a year to take on the command of a particular submarine and two weeks before he was meant to take on that command, they shifted Mm. the submarine he was taking. So he didn't have time to learn the specifics of the boat. And so in that story, he said, we were going to die. You had a captain who really didn't know the ship and you had a compliant crew. Mm. And so you really need to encourage how you're organised, how you're structured, how you communicate with your people has got to allow for a two-way communication rather than just a top-down transmission. You need to check that people have understood what you've intended to communicate and you need to ask them what they think about that. Mm. You need to ask them their ideas for improving the situation. Mm. They will know. They will have a view. So tap into what's already there and create structures that enable people to take responsibility and ownership for their part, their work in the organisation. So mission philosophy, we've talked about the power structures and influence, who has it, who doesn't. These are the, the areas that we focus on when we're looking at changing a culture. Third area is systems and processes. And when we're talking about culture change, specifically here we're talking about systems and processes that shape what happens to people every day. Mm. So we're talking about how we recruit people in, how we onboard them, how we set goals, 
how we manage performance, how we train people, how we reward people. Mm. The way to think about these systems and processes is they're like signals to people about where they should put their time, energy and effort. So I always say to people, clients I work with, is that systems and processes are like training wheels on a bike. They're not going to get the behaviour change, but they hold the bike steady. They hold the organisation steady as you're trying to get new behaviours promoted. So, for example, if I take it back to values, say you've decided your burning ambition is that you want to deliver, uh, you want to delight customers through and with teams. Yep. Okay. So it means that teamwork becomes a really strong value to order to achieve that ambition. Sure. Now, from a system perspective, if your current state only measures individual performance, so people only get rewarded, you've got a system in place that only rewards individual performance, you're not going to get teamwork. Yeah, the message I'm getting is actually form individually. Yeah. Don't worry about <laughs> yeah, team. Don't worry about the team. Yeah, don't worry about collaboration. Don't worry. That's not as important as you getting your individual work done. Mm. Okay, so immediately if your mission is delighting the customer through teamwork, you've completely created a mixed message. Mm. Okay, so what I would do in that organisation is look for goal-setting practices look at KPIs, look at reward and recognition systems that actually balance goals and objectives for individual and team to look at reward and recognition systems that acknowledge the importance of teamwork, that reward effective teamwork, not just individual. So is it almost, Corinne, with the, with the future state, with our burning ambition, we've said we want to be this way, we want to delight customers through teams or whatever it may be. So that's the explicit goal, I suppose. Yeah. This is almost the implicit message, isn't it? So it's, Correct. So it's, you know, what are we actually rewarding? How do we operate as an organisation? Is it aligned to what we say we want? Correct. Or is it not? Yeah, and the other thing is if you're, we talked before about giving employees or team members a say. Okay. Mm. Now, if what you've got is honesty or courage or bravery, which mm-hmm. organizations often have as a value, then one of the simple ways that you can operationalize that value is in goal-setting practices. Mm. So instead of it being top-down, I'm your manager, Dom, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to, mm-hmm. what your goals are, it has, can be a two-way process. So I will share with you what I think we need to achieve as a business. But you could equally come back and say, well, how about this? So this is exactly, you're right, it's an implicit way of reinforcing that we believe you have value, we think you can contribute to this, and we value what you have to say. And in fact, we encourage you to speak up. So that's a system that has enshrined a practice where it's a two-way negotiation around goal setting. And even ones like I think about onboarding Mm. uh, and what you're saying, but it's almost like if there's no onboarding program or very little or it's not well done, then what's the message you hear is, well, it's everyone for themselves. Yep, everyone (laughs) for themselves. Everyone for themselves. Yep, for sure. And onboarding is really important because that's essentially the early days where people Mm. get a very clear idea of what's okay and what's not okay. Quickly learn. Yeah, and it's funny because sometimes we go into organisations and 
somebody who's new will say, I don't know that I can contribute to the discussion. Mm. And my view is you are the perfect person when you're new to contribute to a discussion of culture of the organisation. These people, the new recruits are what I call clean skins. Mm. They haven't been in the organisation long enough Mm. to be immersed in the culture. So they're likely to see the culture in Mm. a naked way. Absolutely. Be really obvious. So I think that these systems have to reinforce your values and behaviour, and we've given a couple of examples. The other thing that is often a gap between where we want to be and where we are now is what we call job design. So how people's jobs are designed will create opportunity for autonomy, Mm. uh, variety, taking ownership, being able to do a task from beginning to end rather than just a narrow little bit of it. When people are able to take responsibility for a whole piece of work, the ownership increases. When you divide that task into lots of narrow pieces of work, I think we've had a bit of a movement of trying to create narrow jobs on the basis that it increases the depth of skill. But unfortunately, what it also does is to dilute responsibility for the outcome. And in that way, you get a fragmented delivery of the service, but also people lose sight of the difference that their effort's making. Mm. So job design's really Motivation killer. Oh, Mm. totally motivation killer. I worked with one organization where they thought they were doing the right thing because they implemented a system that enabled... So the organization was an insurance um, finance organization and they had a system where people answered all sorts of queries across a variety of areas Mm. and they brought in a new system which instead of answering queries in every facet of their stable of products, they specialised them. And so right. the efficient the system to be more efficient, operationally efficient, meant that people stopped having a variety of things to talk about. They just answered questions in one particular sphere. The motivation of employees in that instance went right mm-hmm. down because what they enjoyed was the variety mm-hmm. and the ability to own ownership and responsibility of dealing with a client issue from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. So these things are important in terms of job design, giving people the ability to make decisions mm. if they're competent mm. to do, to, you know, providing that they're competent. So autonomy, significance. So significance in job designs is the degree to which I believe my job's important. Mm. So that if I didn't show up, that would matter. And so for an organisation that's looking to change its culture, they have to draw a line of sight between the ambition and how I contribute to achieving that ambition every single day. Uh So we have, for example, one organisation I worked with where they had this amazing transformation agenda and they had it all on plan on a page. But we realised that the finance team didn't score high on job significance. And we wondered about that because they were so critical to the the build that the organisation was trying to make. And what we realised was that it wasn't explicit that the finance role was actually doing the business cases which allowed the funding to enable the projects. But that wasn't visible to them. And so 
when it is visible, when I know how my effort makes a difference to achieving the ambition, my motivation goes up and I am excited about being able to contribute to the higher order vision of the organization. Mm, mm. Job design, really important. And that's one of those things when you talk about the higher order. So, you know, we kind of talk about people don't jump out of bed to increase shareholder value, you know, and sometimes that's what organizations talk about. No one's like, yes, I'm going to increase some shareholder value today. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> right. But you can see Dom, you know, fist, fist pumping. pumping there in the air. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and this is the interesting thing, although banks and insurers and stuff have been kicked around a bit recently, they actually provide a really important service to people and to the economy and so on. I mean, banks have, the reason we have the economies we have mm. is fundamentally because of banking practices and mm. so on. We've leveraged money, we've done all sorts of things. And so, you know, that's lifted all sorts of people out of poverty, created millions of jobs, all that stuff. So For sure. lots of good and, and insurance companies in the same way when someone's mm. house gets wiped out mm. or something, mm. you know, it's really important that it's there. So it's connecting to those kinds of purposes. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are some people who probably do get excited by creating shareholder Maybe they value. Do. They do. But it's also about looking at most organizations in in the world and in our country serve a social need, a social economic need. Right. You know, people make money, they need somewhere to keep it. And so banks and many of most businesses operate by by a social license. And so I think that a lot of people need, organisations need to help people find what really motivates them, mm. what is significant about their role that they really enjoy. Mm. So I know that there are a lot of people out there who get a lot of enjoyment and fulfilment from being able to help a customer mm. deal with an issue that might be affecting their ability to pay for school fees or ability to send their kids to university. But get into your first house. Get into your first build, house. Build a business. Build this a business, business yeah, all this stuff. You know? Terrific. So I think that that job significance is really important because it speaks to how every single person can understand the contribution that they're making mm-hmm. to the overall business and why it's important. And that's about motivating. If I'm clear on that, then it's going to motivate the right behavior in the right way in terms of achieving the ambition. Okay, so if we've looked at the the mission, the structures, systems, job design, what's that fifth box? Fifth box, there are two things in the fifth box. I'm going to talk about um, communication and leadership. I'm going to talk about leadership last because it's a significant lever of change. Communication is also really important It's so important to be clear, to have a really clear, consistent messaging, and you need to over-communicate. So once you've decided the burning ambition, you're clear about what it is that you stand for, the business priorities, the values and the behaviours, you've got to over-communicate it. You've got to communicate it again and again and again with stories, with examples, with relevant scenarios that are real for the people in the different parts of the business. Mm. And I say over-communicate because sometimes work with clients where they've done this fantastic communication campaign, they've sent out booklets, 
the emails, and but they've probably done it once. Mm-hmm. And then the behavior doesn't seem to, to flow through. And of course, what's happened is you've change requires a new habit. And that habit needs to be really explicitly explained over and over again until it becomes something that we do every day. So not just communicate down from leaders to employees, but also employees speaking up, having a view, sharing their ideas, Uh and then something we call communication for learning, which is times the organisation gets people together to talk about an issue that's important. So it's not communicating, it's not instructional, it's not functional, it's not news, it's a conversation Uh that we're going to have in order for you to get more insight into what's important to the business, for the business to get more insight around what you think how this works, what would be better. So communication for learning. Yeah, love it. And the the other communication that I think of, so you're talking about explicit and implicit, and I, I mentioned, you know, the way we operationalize the stuff through how we do things in the business sends implicit messages. But I think what's really important during times of change as well is when we change things. So when we change the job design or we change what we reward or whatever, is accompanying that with an explicit message saying we are changing the job design because mm. we want to do this kind of behavior mm. and that's why we're doing it. And not just leaving it to people picking up the implicit message, but be explicit about it too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, tell people. and, you know, better still involve them. Yeah. Okay, this is our goal. Yeah, right. This is what we're wanting to yeah, do. This is better. why we're wanting to do it. What do you think about that? Mm. Give us some ideas on how we might be able to do it. How do I get the best out of you? So involve them in it. Team members often have a very grounded view of what needs to change and very often organisations miss out on asking or including that view because they've got a team working on it that's come up with the solution and then we announce the solution and explain the rational reason for it and hope everybody Uh, gets excited. Whereas if you involve people, you won't have to push it because they will understand it. So I think communication is really important. Last but not least is leadership, 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 leadership. It's five buckets on its own. Five buckets on its (laughs) own completely. I have to say that leadership is one of the five areas, levers. It's a very, very important one. Culture and leadership. So leadership shapes culture. Culture shapes leadership. They both drive performance. This Mm -hmm. is what 40 years of research and experience has taught us. Now, sometimes leaders inherit a culture. Culture takes time, decades. So I wasn't there at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but I sure as hell have got carriage of of it now. Mm. So a leader's behavior, even if they've inherited a culture, What they do from today onwards is either going to reinforce what you've got, the current state, or it's going to make it worse in some cases, or it's going to make it better and help it move towards the ambition. So a leader impacts organization and its people in in two ways. A direct impact, what I say, what I do, what I don't do, what I pay attention to, what I reward what I value, what I recognize. So everything that happens between me and other people, so that interpersonal space. 
So it's behaviorable, it's observable, I can hear it. So how I show up, what I speak to, what I leave out, what I pay attention to, these are all signals to people, my people, about what I value. Mm, What's important. And what's important and what I'll reward. And the tough thing about being a leader is people will be watching you 24-7. You are on show 24-7. Tough job. Tough job. And it's not even what you say, it's what you haven't said. Yeah. Right. It's um, when you raise your eyebrows. It's, you know, it can be a lot of body language. And so you've got to be really conscious about how you live the values. I've seen too many times a leader give lip service uh-huh. to a value. And even when they're trying to support it, they don't really believe it. And so it's you obvious. see it in their behavior yeah. every single day. People's BS meters are pretty well tuned as pretty well. Pretty well tuned. And so there is no point. The deadliest problem for an organization that's trying to do culture change is to have a leader that does not reflect the stated values. Doesn't believe and behavior. in it. Doesn't believe in it and doesn't do it. Yeah. You know. So I think there's that direct impact. The indir- Here's the thing too on that. Mm. Leaders are humans too, mm. you know, and so it may be that they may not reflect it now, but maybe they need some development too, you know, and, and that's okay as well. Totally. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the work that we do is about helping leaders develop mm. towards an ambition. I don't think the expectation is to be perfect from the get-go and yeah. I often think, People don't expect their leaders to be perfect. They expect them to be consistent and congruent yeah. and courageous when, when required, mm. uh, when it's needed. So I think there's the direct impact, how a leader shows up behaviorally, what they do, mm. what they say. The other impact that leaders have is an indirect impact. So the way that I think about this is that the decisions they make and how they implement things like the vision Mm. how they communicate the vision, direction, how they set objectives, how they communicate the systems and processes, how Uh they implement those things. So they mightn't have decided to implement or design this particular policy, but they've got a you know, performance management system that might have been something that was centrally designed, but then they have to carry that out. Mm. And so there are two aspects to that indirect impact. One is... If I am involved in the decision-making and what I decide is part of that group, but the other thing is how I implement it is really important. So the main thing I think with leaders, though, is really first and foremost that role modelling, the role modelling. If a leader does not agree, does not believe, then you need to ask as many questions as you need as a leader to understand why it's important because it will be very difficult for you to role model consistently the behavior and values that the organization has stated it needs to have modeled. So they're the five things, the mission, clarity on who we are, what we stand for, what our priorities are, values and behaviors, power structures and influence, making sure that that's distributed, not just top top down, but there's some mechanisms for people to speak up. Uh, systems and processes in terms of onboarding, recruiting, goal setting, two-way, performance management, developing training, 
job design and the very all-important communication and leadership. So going back to your original question, what I would do, future state, define it, values, behaviours, measure the current state, conduct a gap analysis, develop an action plan that addresses one or more of those five things that we've just talked about. And then it's really about implementing and it's communicating over and over again all through the program. Yeah, I love it. And what I love about it, because that's essentially speaking to our how culture works model. And what I love about it, because people say culture can't be measured, but we know it can. Yeah. And people also say you can't change culture, but we know know you can can too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And actually, it's really practical. Yeah. It's really practical and straightforward. And that's personally what I love about it. It's not this ephemeral whatever thing. It's actually pretty concrete. If if you're attuned into it, you can see it everywhere. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point, Dom. I think one of the issues, I think the struggle out there with culture is that there's still so much confusion Uh about it. And so people say they find it hard. It's not tangible. So... It feels airy-fairy. It feels, you know, warm and fuzzy. I'd like a dollar for every time I've had a leader said to me, I'm like, yeah, warm and fuzzy. But it is very concrete. It breaks down to very specific and very concrete things that you can act on. Good news about culture is about cause and effect. And so if you understand the cause and the gaps, then you can come up with a plan. And if you stick to the plan and everybody's on board with the plan, you will get a change. Uh, You will get a change. We've seen that happen time and time again. uh, Yeah, and I think, you know, there's people within our own industry who I think have muddied those waters Mm. and so on, and and they don't have a systematic cause and effect Mm. way of looking at stuff. And and what they say is culture may not actually be culture at all. uh, Yeah, or they they don't take a system view of culture. So they treat culture as if it's a communications campaign. Yeah, um, right. You know, great pictures, lovely taglines, yeah. which it isn't all. It's awesome. You get an awesome poster on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is that leadership is really important, but it won't, you can't just, it's not just about working on leadership. Mm. It's looking at the systems and processes. It's looking at what you stand for. So I think that's the other thing that I see happen out there is organizations almost put on leadership development and they neglect the other aspects of the system, Mm. which need to be attended to in order to be able to move the organization forward. And I'd say even more for the big financial institutions in a small company where leaders can literally talk to every single person. I think leadership has huge impact and it still has a big impact in big banks. But the reality is if you're in one of the big four banks here, the leader can't go around talking to everyone and having the influence on everyone. It's how you systematize mm. those values and so on in mm. in the organization. Final point from the Hain Commission. So we, we've measured it. We've looked at the gap. We've identified what we're working on. We're working on it. And I know what the Hain Commission have said, I'm, I'm pretty sure, is that they actually, or I think it was the government maybe, said they want to have a new commission in three years' time to see if progress has been made. Mm. And one of the recommendations from the Hain Commissions was to determine what progress had been made. So how how would organisations go about that, Corinne? To show the progress that, that they'd made? Yeah. Yeah, look, it's a really simple answer, actually. You just retest. So organisations that have been able to transform their culture and transform their business performance, whether you're talking 
NPS for culture, customer experience, whether you're talking risk management, whether you're talking safety or innovation. Or profit and revenue. Or profit and revenue. All of those things can and are in part driven by culture. So what you would do is you test it to get a baseline and you retest it a year or two down the track to see whether it's changed. And in between, what we've been doing is pulsing, so doing pulse checks quarterly in some instances or every six months between the test and the retest. Now, we pulse on what the causal factors because we know that when you, if you're pulsing on the factors that you're trying to change, then, and you do get a shift in those causal factors, then you're more likely to get a shift in your culture. State cause and effect. Yeah. So yeah. I think that you've got to maintain the momentum of change. And so it's really important. You get your baseline and then you do a pulse check quarterly or every six months and then you do a retest. And I think that any commission that's been reconvened to look at the progress would be very impressed by an organisation that was able to show mm. over the last two years the current state, future state and the progress that they've made in a, a very sound data analytics way, mm. Mm. Uh, which is what we've been working with organisations to do. And that's because also in the report was like for boards, that's the kind of information boards need. Mm. You know, they've come out saying to properly, you know, look after these organisations and to oversee these organisations. Yeah, and I think too the other thing to mention is that we know that culture plays a strong role in shaping an organisation's ability to achieve its outcomes or its metrics. So we've been able to identify through our own data analytics that culture plays a specific role in increasing advocates in terms of NPS data. We know that a high achievement oriented culture plays a positive significant role in delivering higher safety outcomes. We know that culture plays a role in increasing people's motivation, quality of service, brand advocacy. We know that culture plays a role in growing businesses' revenue and profit. Most importantly. Yeah. yeah. So we have the evidence to show this. Mm. We have a very rich data set to show the link between leadership culture and performance. And we know that they can be achieved by all of those outcomes can be achieved by constructive culture. Yeah, I love it. Probably got to call it there, Corinne. It's been an awesome conversation. We've probably gone a little longer than our traditional episodes. <laughs> but you know what? I think it's a topic that we really need to get into. Yeah. You know, and obviously we're addressing the, the banks and financial institutions today, but those principles hold true of any organization mm. um, looking to, to change culture and looking to have that burning ambition and to get there. Yeah. I know we've got to wrap up, Dom, but I just want to say that it is very clear what needs to be done. So no organization needs to feel that they're out on a limb mm. and that they don't know what to do. Mm. We have a very rich amount of data and research and assistance that we can afford. But also, it isn't rocket science. It doesn't mean that it's easy, mm. but we have a, a very good track record in helping organisations understand the change that they need to make. And so I think don't 
feel like you're out on a limb. Don't feel like you're having to wonder and guess your way through it. The way forward, culture can be measured and it has been shown to be effective if you follow a model, a sound model and and methodology. Mm, Love it. Can be measured, can be changed. Take the guesswork out of it. Absolutely. Thanks for your time today, Corinne. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. Thanks for being part of our amazing community. We can only do it together with yourself. So long for now.